Thank you to Wildcare and Wildlife Acoustics for sponsoring the Bat Chat podcast. Can you hear that? We can. Wildlife Acoustics creates the world's leading bat acoustic monitoring tools, designed to help scientists make impactful discoveries for our biologically diverse planet, turning this into this. Visit wildlifeacoustics.com to learn more. Wildcare are committed to supporting the ecology industry and are specialists in supplying a large range of monitoring, conservation and habitat management products, as well as equipment hire and service and repair. With a large range of products coupled with friendly and expert help and advice, Wildcare is a favourite supplier for ecologists nationwide. Go to wildcare.co.uk to see the full range and quote BatChat at the checkout for 10% off all bat detectors and bat boxes. Hello and welcome to Bat Chat from the Bat Conservation Trust. This podcast is for anyone who loves bats. We bring you the stories from the world of bat conservation, from the people on the ground doing work that furthers our understanding of these magical creatures. There's a lot of information and experience out there and our aim is to bring it right to you. I'm Steve Rowe, I'm an ecologist and a trustee of the Bat Conservation Trust. Don't forget you can join the conversation online using the hashtag BatChat, that's all one word. This week we're joining Lord Edward Manners who owns Haddon Hall in the Derbyshire Peak District. In the corner of the hall is the family chapel and hidden in the roof is a rooster of around 250 soprano pipistrelle bats. They cause quite a mess in the chapel and visitors definitely notice the smell when they walk in. So I wanted to ask Lord Edward why they're so tolerant of the bats and whether they caused any issues during the recent restoration work done on the chapel. The great thing about this roost is you can sit inside and watch the bats emerge from the roof and fly around before the light fades. As numbers begin to build, the space becomes more and more crowded, so much so that bats end up colliding with each other before flying through the doorway, out into the courtyard and eventually out into the parkland. It's a bit echoey in this interview with being sat inside the stone chapel, as I chatted with Lord Edward about rewilding of the estate, his conservation work in Africa and the fact that he has to clear back droppings from his desk each morning. Summer seems to have finally broken. We've had uh, a good amount of rain overnight with, with the first thunderstorms of the year. And I'm in uh, a part of the world which is renowned for its Bakewell Tarch, just down the road from, from the town of Bakewell in Derbyshire. And I'm at Haddon Hall with Lord Edward Manners. Uh, so thank you very much for coming on, on the podcast, Lord Edward. Pleasure. You're very welcome. Haddon Hall's been in uh, your family's ownership for the last 900 years yeah. or so. Um, what's the history of the hall and, and why has it been so well preserved? The history of the hall, it was originally <clears throat> built as a Norman fort just after the conquest in the late uh, 12th century, when after the conquest the Normans threw up thousands of these sort of very rudimentary forts in the early days, which are nothing more than really a wooden stockade with a, a strong gate. And then <clears throat> over time, some of them were turned into castles, some of them were just pulled down. And Haddon, rather unusually, was turned into a, a manor house, mm-hmm. a fortified manor house. Um, so it was never garrisoned, and therefore it wasn't turned into a castle. Um, and so it survived all the, all the two in the Wars of the Roses and the Civil War. And so that's one reason why it is like it is. And the other reason why is because it was left empty for 200 years. 
Right. From, from 1700 until the 1920s when my grandfather restored it. So it missed out on all, all that kind of modernizing period of the 1800s and the, and the 1700s. Um, and so it really is just as it was when it was left in 1700, not much done 1600. So most of what you see at Haddon is medieval, early medieval, some Norman, uh, a lot of Tudor and some Elizabethan, but nothing after that. So it's very unusual. And I think because it was left for 200 years, it's also, it also made a rather peaceful place. <laughs> so the animals moved in as well. <laughs> <laughs> and, and coming to the animals, we're sat in, in the family chapel, which is a very small, a very small chapel, not like the, the local village churches or anything, just a few meters wide. But we're sat here and we're watching, oh, at the moment, about 20, 30 soprano pips drop bats emerging from the roof flying around. And that's how I came to Haddon for the first time a few years ago now, back in 2012, 2013, when you invited us up and, and do a count of this. You've invited us several times over the years, and we've counted this roost, and there's 250-odd bats in this roost. Why have you been so accommodating of, of the local bat group? Well, they're, they're a very important part of the house. I mean, I sort of treat the house, it's almost like a, a habitat in itself for all sorts of different things. The bats are... One very important uh, species that live at Haddon. <clears throat> and also, we have a fantastic colony of wild bees which lives mm. in the walls. And uh, they've spread out for us throughout the house in some rather inconvenient places. But <laughs> they are a um, very, very healthy colony of bees, which is great. And then they go off into the woods and create new colonies. And um, so we, re- we really encourage that. And we have. Um, swallows nesting and, and so there's all sorts of different things living in this house and I'm really into all the sort of conservation stuff and you know looking after habitats and trying to increase biodiversity wherever I can and so bringing you guys in was just really important to just work out and see what we have and, and to you know, underline why it's so important I mean you mentioned the, the habitats and the range of wildlife you've got there when I was um, looking on your website earlier today, I've noticed that it's had a massive revamp and there's now a comprehensive ecology section detailing all the work that various scientists now have undertaken mm. across the estate. And for the first time, you're opening up the medieval the medieval parkland for the first time for mm. guided walks and talks. Mm. Why then the shift from having the members of the public go around the house and the historic bit to then going out into that parkland? Well, I think I'm really interested in this whole sort of connection between nature and humans. And if you own and are responsible for land like I am, then it's a it's a natural it's a natural progression and this this link is so important. Yeah. And so with the medieval park, I had an opportunity about twelve years ago to take that land back in hand. It's about four hundred acres, so it's a mm. decent sized yeah. park. And it was first imparked back in the fourteen hundreds and we researched where the boundary was for the original medieval park. And so the project has really been to go back to how it was back in the 1300s. Mm. Um, and that has involved removing some of the field boundaries and putting a big fence up around the whole... But well, not a big fence at all, it's only a wire stock fence, <laughs> just to keep the cows in. And so it's been a, it's been a project, so it's about habitat creation and it's about 
um, improving biodiversity. And obviously, you know, we've had substantial help through stewardship schemes, um, which is, you know, important public money. And so the you know, it, it's important to open it up to people as much as possible without uh, causing too much disturbance on the land. So the, what we decided to do was to... Um, create some guided walks. Yeah. So the experience you get when you come and visit the medieval park is more about, <clears throat> it, it's more immersive. You're not just walking and bringing a picnic and <laughs> sitting with a, a, a rug by the river type thing. You know, it, it's, it, it, it's, we have special interest uh, walks and talks. Some are about butterflies, some are about birds, some are about the history of the park, some are just general nature type walks yes um so the idea is to <clears throat> is to, for, to make it a, a, an interesting experience for people coming these walks uh, <clears throat> so that's the idea that's our, our solution uh, and i think we're doing some rather amazing things uh, and it's really really working and um we're seeing really incre- massive increase in in all sorts of different species and, and biodiversity um and so <clears throat> which is a nice thing to show people apart from anything else and hopefully People get inspired by it and go off and do similar things elsewhere, and hopefully that'll help nature and help people as well. That's the idea. I mean, it's quite refreshing to hear that. Um, your father was the tenth Duke of Rutland, and he was known for keeping the longest established pack of foxhounds. Mm-hmm. Countryside pursuits can be a hot button issue. Your vision for this immersive side of keeping the nature in and encouraging people to reconnect with nature. Do you think? you know, yourself and the other landowners across the UK, do you think there is a, a trend now for perhaps moving away from more traditional activities such as hunting or driven grouse shooting, more towards valuing nature and, and rewilding? You know, what's your view on that? Um, yes, I think you're, I think you're probably right. There is a, a general movement because whatever you do in the countryside has to be appropriate and it has to be relevant to the time. I mean, that's not to say I'm, against fox hunting or, or grouse shooting because they have served a, a purpose within nature um, over a long period of time. <clears throat> so that's another debate, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think, I think it is, it's, it, you know, in this day and age, you have to really think about your activities as a landowner and the long-term strategy. And the priorities are somewhat, somewhat changed you know, climate change is, is super important for us. We have these fantastic rivers on the estate with 21 miles of river bank and four rivers. And, and that, to me, is a crucial indicator of the health of the land here. And so um, you're seeing this year where everything's so incredibly dry and rivers, well, our rivers are okay just, but we desperately need rain. It's really worrying. Mm. So the priority is really for me are to build... Um, resilience into the landscape or well, certainly into the land that I, I own and look after but, but I think proving making nature work for itself and giving it every opportunity to help itself is, is what I think is the most important thing to do as a landowner today So in terms of building in that resilience then you know you've started this rewilding project how 
similar is it in terms of the methods that something like the NEPA state have used you know have you have you drawn an experience from from Charlie Burrell and, and Isabella Tree down there and you know great inspiration from them yeah they're good friends of mine mm-hmm. um, and I went to visit their projects when they very when they started it whatever it was 17 18 years ago mm-hmm. and I stayed with them many times in those days when uh, the early days when you were wading through <laughs> fields of th- thistles up to your neck uh, and they were real pioneers on it, and the idea of of taking unproductive farmland out of farming, out of producing food, and they were producing, and they were mainly a, a dairy farm at the time with a with a big dairy unit producing milk and cheeses and whatever. It, it was a was it was a brave move, yeah. But it was also commercially sound thing for them to do because they were losing a lot of money on the farm and so what to do with you know, unproductive land and I think this is the real issue right now we're all facing and um, and it's a bit of a movement about you know, whether land goes into food production or whether it goes into creating natural assets which has other benefits than producing the food so I think that's the that's the thing so I was very much inspired by by them I think the whole rewilding name <clears throat> has been overused and has some slightly negative connotations to people who are in the farming community and and other sorts of stakeholders i think you call them that yeah uh, and so and so that's I, I call that i don't actually use the word rewilding i mean you won't see it on our mm. website i don't think no um i use i tend to use um i tend to use regenerative farming i think that's a, that's a better term because it implies or regenerative land management. Because we're not just letting the land go; it's actually jolly hard work creating habitat. <clears throat> so we're working just as hard on the land, but in a slightly different way. Our main focus is not about producing food and meat; um, it's about creating a habitat, and I, I call it a, a productive paradise. Mm-hmm. Is the idea? So create a fantastic paradise, uh, a land uh, rich in, in everything from the, from the little grubs and the ground to the mycelium up to the, up to the big predators on top and everything in between. So, so that's it. So cr- create the paradise and then the productive side will come. You know, we will be able to produce some meat, but yeah. it won't be in high volumes. But it'll be very high quality. We will be showing people around the land and making a bit of money from that too, and hopefully educating at the same time. So it will be producing stuff. It will it will be able to stand on its own two feet um, <clears throat> commercially. Hopefully, not quite yet, but that's the idea. So uh, so we will be looking to make it uh, work properly, but in a slightly different way. Nice. I was interested to read on on your website that you've got a particular species of lichen which. It's not only a first for the UK, but it was only the second time it's been recorded in the world, I think, which yes. amazed me. I have no idea how to pronounce it. I'm afraid it's got a very long, long, long <laughs> lot of letters to it, and almost impossible to do it, but that's right, on, on an old ash tree. And I think part of the really interesting part about, about this, this project and various projects is to bring in a whole load of um, experts uh, who are always fascinated and Fascinating for their particular, and there's an, we, had, we had a brilliant surveyors going around to get our our saprophytic um, beetles, and we've had lichen surveys and and bat surveys and bird surveys, and then you learn not only do you learn what you've got and how important it is, 
but also it creates a foundation of a proper science data, which you can then then you, you, you can then prove how well what you're doing actually works. Great stuff. So coming back to the bats then, how much of a problem do bats cause on the estate? I'm sure I remember you telling me a story that you have to sweep off bat droppings from your desk every morning. I do. <coughs> yes, I do. Uh, but that's okay. They, they, <laughs> they cause... <laughs> I'm used to that. <laughs> uh, they don't cause any problem whatsoever. I mean, the only problem they cause is literally droppings around the house in the summer. We have to sweep the chapel every morning. Um, there's a bit of a smell sometimes, but it's mm. just a part of the smell of the house, really, amongst other things. Uh, so, you know, they are very welcome and they, and they perform a, a very important function as well. Can you, what's your earliest memory you've got of seeing bats? Well, when I was a boy, we used to come here on summer holidays and I remember, I remember being at a breakfast on the private side and there was a fragment of a tapestry above the table and, um, and two bats suddenly appeared in the, middle, in the middle of breakfast and started flying around. Um, so that caused a bit, of a bit of a stir. But they were everywhere, really. They used to come into the, our bedrooms, and I mean, they're all over the house. So you just get used to them after a bit. And with, with, like I said, we sat in this, this chapel, and you've recently had some restoration work completed. You've had... Um, or various bits and pieces done both to the stained glass and to, to the stonework. Did the bats cause any issues in terms of timing or the actual rooster or anything like that during the work? No, we had to. No, we, we were advised, I think, by the bat group about exactly what impact the restoration work would have on the bats. Uh, or we got the majority of the work completed by the time that the bats reappeared again in the, in the spring. So it wasn't a problem. And in fact, most of the work was to the main east window of the chapel so it was to one end of the building mm. and didn't really affect the rest of the building at all and how often do bats crop up during restoration work on on the rest of the state you know is it a regular thing that crops up well they're very much around they're on the rivers and up in the woods and we have a lot of dead wood around the estate um so if a tree falls down or or dies for whatever purpose providing it's not going to cause a danger to anybody then we just we'd leave them <clears throat> which is why we have so many good good um <laughs> good beetles and um and bats and uh and also roost for um wild bees so so probably we have all sorts of really good habitats for bats all over the estate we also have 800 acres of woodland here so managed in a similar sort of way so we're hoping to increase their numbers if possible that's the idea and I know in the height of summer when visitors come into the chapel you've often got a sign up saying please excuse the, the slight smell we've got bats mm. what, what are the attitudes of the general public to, to the bats when they see the signs up here in the chapel I, well, I think probably they're not flying around their heads it's okay <laughs> <You know? laughs> I, I think people who come here are rather amazed by the house and its atmosphere and and you know, bats and old buildings kind of go together rather well, don't they? Yeah. <laughs> Part of the thing, really. Um, and they're all fascinated by it. <clears throat> and and when, our, when we tell them that, that this chapel is actually a, a certified bat roost and different kinds of species of bat within the chapel, people are usually really fascinated. Hmm. And, I mean, you've talked about the woodland there. You've got, you've got a massive amount of woodland. 
you know, what are the commercial ventures incorporate wildlife? I'm sort of thinking about the, the shining quarry restoration work that's ongoing at the moment. Mm. Shining Bank is a quarry which was a <clears throat> limestone quarry uh, for a primary aggregate. There are several uh, quarries around Derbyshire or less than they used to be and most of them have, have, have closed down and um, and so Shining Bank was closed about <clears throat> 10 years ago and the idea there is to just really let it go back to nature. There were plans to turn it into a white-tailed crayfish arc site, but mm. that didn't really come to much because because <clears throat> the water levels are so different yeah. um, different times of year. So it turns out it's not really suitable, but it is a a wonderful habitat for particularly for nesting birds and presumably for bats as well. And just before we touch on your your work over in Africa, what would you say to any owners of historic properties or grade listed buildings if they've got bats? Let them in, <clears throat> work with them. Yeah, they're really not a problem. Bring in experts like yourself <laughs> to help advise on on how to look after them better. If I were you, brilliant. And so, so you're a trustee of the Odyssey Conservation Trust. What's the interest in Africa, and and what conservation projects does that organisation undertake? Um, well, I've been involved in Africa for <clears throat> a while. I've just got an interest in Africa. I've travelled a lot in all sorts of all parts of Africa. And I got involved with um, a project in northern Mozambique, um, and I had a con- small conservation trust at one point, um, which helped set up a um, a project in, in northern Mozambique, which was all about <coughs> conservation and communities. So how you integrate communities into conservation, where mm. you treat wildlife and habitat as an asset for the communities, as opposed to something to consume. <coughs> um, and so that, it was just a, 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 an interest. And I've, um, I've been involved with some friends of mine, uh, Chris Cox and Julie Garnier. Julie is a, a vet, a very eminent wildlife, big, big animal wildlife <coughs> vet. Um, she's French. And so they, uh, have set up this conservation trust called Odyssey Conservation. And so it's primarily about, about community conservation and also, the link between uh, what is called one health link between animal health and the health of the land and the health of humans together. So it's all about projects around those sorts of topics. Yeah, that's great. Lord Edward Manners, thank you so much for coming on the show. Great, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. big thanks to Lord Edward for sitting down with me. If you'd like to find out more about the rewilding of the medieval parkland, the link is in the show notes, along with a link to a video made by Derbyshire Bat Group of the soprano pipistrelle bats flying around inside of the chapel, so that you can see for yourself just how busy it gets once they all start emerging. Next time we return to the Natural History Museum in London to discover the little-known world of bat flies. Please do get in touch with the show to tell us about your bats, a special bat sighting you had this year, or a site you think everyone should visit to go and watch bats. Whatever your experience with bats, we really want to hear from you, so do get in touch. The voicemail link is in the show notes, and don't worry, you can hear your message back and re-record it if you don't like it before sending it to us. Messages can be up to 90 seconds long, and we can't wait to hear from you. I'll leave you with the sound of the Haddon Hall pipistrelles flying around the inside of the chapel. There's no bat detector being used in this recording. The sound of the bat's wings you can hear is just from the podcast microphone, so you get some idea of just how close they're flying around us.
Now lots of you have seen me in branded t-shirts and hoodies with the Batchat logo on and you've all been asking me when they'll be available. Well, we're thrilled to let you know that a whole range of Batchat clothing and tote bags is now available for you on our T-Mail store. The link's in the show notes. Whether you're a long-time supporter or a new member of the Batchat family, we can't wait for you to share your photos of you wearing our merch on social media. Be sure to tag the Bat Conservation Trust in your posts. If you're listening to Batchat on Google Podcasts, we wanted to let you know that Google have announced they plan to discontinue their app later this year. So we recommend making the switch to an alternative podcast app. And we've put some links in the show notes to alternative apps that you can follow Batchat on so that you don't miss any future episodes.